0: Now your Northview Church preaching lineup, ladies and gentlemen, make some noise. At six foot four, out of Lincoln Junior High and Central High School, with 93% church voting approval, he's coming to get you—the Mamba of Minneapolis your senior pastor-elect, C.J. Johnson! I love it. Anyone excited to be at church? I think you ought to be excited. Be excited to be here. I have to say, there's part of me that feels really uncomfortable right now. Like, if you were me, you'd feel embarrassed, right? Right? when the creative team said they were gonna do an introduction, I kinda squirmed. Like, this is really uncomfortable. And then there's part of me where, folks, I am living my best life right now. (laughs) I mean, this is as good as it gets. I have spent much of my life in the church, been a pastor and a Christian for a long time, and I don't know if I have ever felt more at home in a church than I currently do right now. (laughs) This is amazing. Which I do pray, if this is your first time to Northview, that that is the case for you, that you just feel right at home here at Northview. If you're new to Northview, we are one church meeting across 12 different locations. And can we just say hello to everyone online and everyone at our other locations? Welcome. It is hard to take a guy serious when he's dressed like this, though, right? I feel like a globetrotter, like I should do something to, like, impress you guys, like, spinning around, but we'll pass that. But here's the deal. I mean, this is as Indianan as it gets. And folks, you can't come out here if you're not going to do the whole thing. And this is a good thing because some of you, you're having a really hard time getting your friends interested in your church. And now the next conversation you get to lead out with this. Guys, you're not going to believe it. I just saw my pastor rip off his pants in, 20, in front of 20,000 people. So it's gonna happen. Here we go. Count me down from three. In three, two, one, there it is. That's my party trick, that's my gimmick. Which those I think are from like the 80s. Like those buttons are rusted. We had to get some WD-40 just to get those to open up. But here's the deal, if you are new to church, you should know we believe church ought to be a good time. We believe that the gospel is good news. That's just not our own opinion, that's what scripture says. In fact, when Jesus first showed up, his first announcement that went forward through angels was what? Joy to the world. Folks, I'm telling you, when you share your faith with people, if it doesn't put a smile on their face, you're telling it wrong. I mean, there is so much to celebrate. Yeah, life comes with some struggles, and yeah, there are some challenges and and pain and confusion. But at the end of the day, our God is amazing. He is good. He is faithful. He is still seated on the throne, and he still holds our world and our lives in the palm of his hand. And so we unapologetically celebrate Jesus. We celebrate Jesus. And we are in... Just such a fun season as a church, and we're also in a fun season in culture, and I just think the two marry well together, and so we are calling this March Madness. You want to just love March Madness? You love sports, you love the game of basketball? I'm a big fan of the game of basketball. And have you ever considered what is it, what is it that ties us to sports the way it does? I mean, sometimes we don't think about the psychology behind these things. People from all walks of life and and different experiences resonate with sports. And what you'll find is subconsciously what what connects us to sport is the parallel between sports and life. It just resonates. Have you ever found that sports and life come with some similar themes? And so you watch sports and you kind of identify with the underdog. Because you know what it's like to be faced with some odds and wonder, hey, can I overcome the challenges that I'm facing. I mean, you resonate with defeat because you yourself have, well, you've experienced some disappointment. But you also know the thrill and the joy that comes with victory. You know the importance of being on a team and and good teamwork. You also know what it's like to have some dysfunctional team members in life. I, I mean, the list goes on and on. You even identify and empathize with people who get injured There's something in you that you just identify like, hey, I know what it's like to have a season or a situation cause so much pain that it puts me on the sideline. I mean, we look at people who sit the bench and and we identify with that. There is a, a psychological connection that takes place with life and sports, and that's really what sustains and creates our fanhood. Maybe you haven't thought that deeply about it, but that is what is there. And in addition to all those elements, one element that I think about, and I've been thinking about it a lot during the series that we just came out of first, is I think of some of the coaches I grew up with. I grew up in an era where coaches were still allowed to coach. Us millennials are defanging coaches. I know that's gonna press on some of you. But I grew up with some hard-nosed coaches. Coaches that would yell at you, push you to your limits. Coaches who were unrelenting, and their commitment to pull your potential out of you. And they would not settle, and they wouldn't allow you to settle because they believe so deeply in you and what you could accomplish. They would push you to your limits. You wanna have that kind of coach? Maybe it was also your dad, which was part of my story as well. But I think about that because guys, as a church, my goodness, have we been blessed with an amazing coach. We're just thankful for Pastor Steve and how he led through the first series. And here's the deal. I'm guessing, in fact, I can guarantee it. I've sensed it in some conversations that this entire first series created some tension for some of you. And I get that because anytime there is a, a call to scripture and a call to obedience, it, it kind of creates a tension. Every single one of us endure that. Just because I stand on a platform doesn't mean I'm exempt from those things. That's what faith does, it stretches us. But in the stretch is where you gain strength. And here's what I promise you, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, there is going to be a fruitfulness to your faith. And there is going to come a conversation. I guarantee it will happen. And individuals will look at the productivity and the activity of God in your life. And they will wonder, hey, how did that come about? And here's what you're going to say. You're going to say, I was blessed to have a pastor who didn't dilute the word of God and who was committed to preaching truth and calling the best out of me. And I'm so thankful for a hard-nosed coach who would not let me settle. Can we celebrate our pastor? I, I, I just love it. I, I love the connection between sports and life. And I think we can draw so many parallels And in this season, I believe God is calling each and every one of us to escalate and to elevate our faith. No matter who you are, whether you're not a Christian and maybe it's a call to take that first step in your faith, or maybe you've been a Christian for three minutes, three years, or 30 years, every single one of us can continue growing in our trust and our confidence in who our God is. What would happen if you elevated your faith? Tragically, sometimes we think of faith in seasons rather than a lifestyle. You ever bumped into someone who thinks that way? It's like the people who go hard for three months just to get in shape for the wedding and then relapse on the honeymoon because they turned it into a season. And some of you, you do the same thing in your faith. Hey, in this season, I'm going to sell out to my faith. But because you don't develop the personal habits and disciplines and hone in on the faculties that God has given you, you don't develop a lifestyle of sustaining faith that leads to fruitfulness and impact and fulfillment. And I'm telling you, some of you, you are towing the line in forfeiting the life Jesus died to give you. And what would happen if you elevated your faith? I love talking about faith. In the scripture, we come across a book by the title Hebrews, and it speaks extensively about faith. Now, you should know the Bible is not a book. that's a bad understanding of the Bible. The Bible is the library of 66 books. It's fascinating, and it spans a pretty lengthy portion of time in human history. And in it, you find the book of Hebrews. Now, here's some context to the book of Hebrews, which this is going to feel like the pregame, you know, commentary. Real sports aficionados, they always tune in to watch the pregame show, right? It's when a bunch of washed-up old athletes talk about stuff that the average person doesn't care about. And what I'm going to talk about next, maybe a portion of you are like, just get to the point. Where are we going? But there's some of you, you care deeply about your faith. And you want to grow as a student of God's word. What I'm going to share next, it'll serve you well, but it is educational. You see, this is the book of Hebrews, and something that we all have to understand is nobody knows who the author is. Now, there's speculation, and there's some theories, and there's some good ones. Some people think it's the Apostle Paul. Some believe it was Barnabas. Some will say it was Apollos. But we all have to accept with humility none of us fully knows who is the author of this book. What we do know about the author is this individual knew the apostles. You can tell throughout the entire book they spent extensive time around the apostles. Those who knew Jesus, did life in ministry, and witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. So he was familiar, or she was familiar, with their experience. In addition to that, this individual was a familiar with you know the teachings of the apostles. So that's what we know about the author. That said, we don't know the author. In addition to that, we don't know the audience. So some letters in scripture will begin and, and it's clear, they'll even you know mention people by name or region or, or certain times, they'll say, hey, this is when this person was in leadership over the region and they'll list those things out. We don't get that in the book of Hebrews. But what we do get is it is clear that this author begins this letter with the assumption that the people he is writing to have a strong understanding of God's word. See, he jumps into some pretty hefty things and he doesn't even take time to explain it. So he talks about the Torah and the law of God and the tabernacle and the prophecies. He's talking about all these things and he never takes time to clarify or to give some background information to those things. So he is writing with the assumption that the people I'm speaking to, well, they know and they're familiar with what I'm talking about. And ultimately, guys, there's two goals. There are two goals to the book of Hebrews. And ultimately, really, they're the two goals that we have in mind every single time we gather as a church. The first goal is this writer seeks to establish Jesus as superior over all things. And folks, I will unapologetically debate, argue, converse, whatever, with anybody who can test the idea that there's anybody who compares to our Jesus. He stands supreme in a league of his own. He's the Savior of the world. He is the one and only begotten Son of God. Unapologetically. Unapologetically. Now, that is not to be rude to anybody, but that is to operate in some confidence. When you do your homework and you have some experiences and you travel with this Jesus, you begin to discover what the Bible says is true. And the world cannot offer what is contained in this Jesus. Church, he is superior. And some of you, you are settling for generic versions I mean, you're putting hunts on a hot dog when Heinz is the only ketchup you should truly use. (laughs) Show of hands if Heinz is the only option. Yeah. Well, in the same way you're selective with your ketchup, my goodness, be selective with who you're entrusting your identity to. Be selective with who you're entrusting your purpose to. Right? I I mean, there is no other than Jesus Christ. There is no other, and I pray that some of you will embrace a relationship with him today for the first time. Last night, we had over 40 people here at Carmel give their life to Christ. and we had 13 at the last service give their life to Christ. Is that not outstanding? (laughs) And I'm guessing the same thing is happening at all of our campuses. What a joy, church. Come on, what a joy. It is to introduce people to Jesus Christ. That's his number one goal. He's superior. Number two is he is trying to urge these believers to not throw in the towel on their faith and to persevere. And I feel in the current season of life that we are in and the climate within our culture, there are a lot of Christians walking around with towel in hand contemplating giving up. And I'm telling you don't give up, do not throw in the towel. Because here's the deal. It is your faithfulness that positions you to discover his faithfulness. I believe faith is a two-way street. And in the same way, our faith honors God. Church, God honors our faith. And so it's when you stay to the course, and as you trust him despite what you're going through, you just arrive at a place of greater and greater confidence that is the book of Hebrews. It is written by a Hebrew man to Hebrew people. And guys, this is where it gets heady, but lean in. This is a big deal. See, at one point in history, the gospel was contained to the Jewish people. So it was only the Hebrews and the, you know, the Jewish people that possessed this Relationship with God. But then all throughout scripture, you start bumping into this promise that God would soon and eventually reach the Gentiles. Which, if you're not a Jew in the room, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Go ahead. Come on. Go ahead and raise your hand if you're not of Jewish descent. Yeah. So we're Gentiles. You want thankful that the, the gospel jumped outside the Jewish bloodline, also that you and I could have a relationship with God? It's amazing. So, with that, some things changed in how we started thinking about faith. Eventually, what was once a Hebrew way of thinking was adopted by the Greeks, who really hanged their hat on thinking. I mean, think of the philosophers throughout the ages, the Socrates and the Plato's. I mean, these were sophisticated and brilliant individuals, and they adopted, throughout time, the Greeks adopted our faith, and they started approaching decisions within the faith differently now it's not to say that you can only have one way or the other but it is to say faith aligns with a hebrew way of thinking more than it does a greek way of thinking let me create a distinction for you a greek way of thinking is the greeks they would think their way into acting they would think their way into acting so they'd sit around, they'd contemplate, and they'd discern, and they'd discuss. And then when they had some confidence in their opinion, then they would act. You tracking with me? But the Hebrews, instead of thinking their way into acting, church, they would act their way into thinking. That's faith. You see, this is what is limiting and holding some of you back in your faith. You are expecting evidence on the front side of obedience. And that's not faith. You're expecting evidence on the front side of obedience. And that would be a Greek way of thinking. But at its root, our faith emerged from a Hebrew way of thinking where we act our way into thinking. Where we take one step of faith, trusting in the character of our God and the promises of our God, and we lean in in faith. And it is through our acts of obedience that we discover greater and greater evidence that's faith so some of you you're you're bumping into a prompting from god you're reading scripture and it is calling you to something and you have some doubts some questions maybe god has put something before you in his word and you're staring at it and you're thinking the question now why is he wanting me to do that and why in the world would i ever say yes to that kind of command and guys, here is a simple, practical step. Write it down. Here it is. To understand why, submit and apply. It's, it's pretty simple. To understand why, submit and apply. I mean, the evidence you are looking for in your faith is on the other side of obedience. And I think one thing that trips people up is they don't know that the path to confidence this is a hefty thought, listen to me. The path to confidence almost always leads through confusion. The path to confidence, it almost always leads through confusion. There will come a point where you have to trust God. Okay, Lord, I'm taking you at your word. I know you never lie. And so I'm going to take this step. And that is faith. In Hebrews, is extensive when it comes to addressing faith. It comes to chapter 11 and it lays out what is known as the hall of faith, similar to the hall of fame. Hey, here are some of the great heroes in our legacy in our family. And it lists them off and every single one of them, it condenses their story and it starts their summary with this two-worded statement. By faith, Abraham did this. And by faith, Moses did this, and by faith, you and I are called to similar things. So it starts out in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Another way of saying it is I believe faith is patience, and this is what they were commended for. Faith is patience with mystery. It's confidence in what they hope for despite what they do not see. It is patience with mystery. It's saying, hey, I am going to trust and be faithful knowing that he's always gonna remain faithful. And I can be patient knowing that I don't have all the answers. I mean, is it okay just to acknowledge that there's not a single one of us who has all the answers when it comes to our faith? I mean, come on, be careful we don't swell up in pride. Is there something in you that truly does believe that there's more to God than than you've yet discovered? Is there more to God than you've yet to experience? And my question is, if there's more to God to experience, church, why not go after it? Come on, if there's more to God than we've yet to taste and see, why not go after it? I always say when I read the Bible, if it's on the menu, I'm going to order it. If it's on the menu, I'm going to order it. See, faith is trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And this is what the ancients were commended for. And I mean, he goes down the list of all these individuals who just acted out their faith. And guys, know this is a big difference between professing faith and possessing faith. Those are two very different things. Professing faith and possessing faith are two very different things. Makes me think of the stage of life my kids are in. Every single one of them each week is assigned a spelling list. Any exhausted parents going through spelling lists at home? We are in the season of a lot of spelling lists. And our kids are currently going to a Christian school. This is our first go at a Christian school. And so far it's going really well. But what's funny is even the spelling lists are religious. I mean, these are some godly words. I was looking at my daughter's spelling list the other day, and I thought to myself, this kid's going to outpace me spiritually if I'm not careful. (laughs) I'm still competitive. i got to be on my game. She had words like atonement, justification, righteousness as spelling words. So I tell my daughter, hey, well, use it in a sentence. And she said, Dad, that's not the test. I said, in this house, it is. Use it in a sentence. And she said, again, Dad, it's not the test. I just need to be able to spell it out. And I said, well, babe, I want you to be able to live it out. And here's the deal. As a pastor, and I'm going to say this gently, because I bump into Christians all the time who, my goodness, do they know the Bible. And they can quote scriptures till they're blue in the face. And they can explain what everything means. And they know a ton, When it comes to spelling out God's word. But my goodness, why doesn't it show up at work with you on a Monday? I mean, you can spell it out, but can you live it out? There is a difference. And I know I'm pastoring some of you strongly. But guys, I'm not here to be your buddy. Right? Like my role in your life is to pastor you and to honor God's word to the best of my ability and to declare his goodness over your life. That's my role in your life. And there's a big difference. Big difference. Yeah, slow clap from the top. I appreciate it. It's like, all right, are we going to do this thing? Should we affirm what he just said? I get it. Sometimes it's a firm challenge. But here's the deal. There's a radical difference. And I'm telling you, the result, it speaks for itself. Between people who just profess faith and people who truly possess faith. Like that one believes without a doubt in their mind that God is good and he is for them and he is with them. Look at how they operate in their faith. It gets to the end of this list of heroes and it speaks of some anonymous individuals. And it says this about them. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword and they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And watch this final statement. The world was not worthy of them. I mean, listen, there's a big difference between believing in a truth and bleeding for a truth. That's radical faith. And I'm not gonna even try to be an imposter up here and act as if I'm close to that. I think sometimes what becomes faulty thinking for us as followers of Christ is we draw too close of parallels between our experiences and some of the heroes of the faith. You ever bumped into someone having a rough day, and she was like, I'm just a modern-day Job. I'm like, sweetheart, you just sprained your ankle. You are nothing like Job. There's a pretty big difference. And here's the deal. When I stare at this, just in all truthfulness, and I don't know if this lets some of you down, I just, I'm nowhere near this. I think when you go to the pages of Scripture, there is this call and there is this prompting that grants us the awareness, wait a second, I think I can bump up my faith. No matter who you are, where you are, no matter how long you've been following Christ, I think you can bump up your faith. And I think in this season, if we do so, God might do remarkable things that we don't even know to pray for. But again, it comes down to some faulty thinking. We kind of fall into this binary way of thinking, which is contradicting to who our God is. Our God is three in one, so division doesn't work well within the kingdom. And so we're always in this binary way of thinking, either or. And so we stand at the crossroads, and we're often kind of contemplating two decisions. And I think when it comes to a call from God and a life of faith, really we're asking two questions. Would I rather have inconvenience or insignificance? This is really where people find themselves thinking. I mean, this is the tension many of you felt during the first series. Do I want the inconvenience that comes with making a sacrifice? Or would I rather have the insignificance that comes with not participating? Yeah, that's hefty words. But ultimately, we're standing at half court in life, and we're asking the question, do I want to play defense or do I want to play offense? Which in the Johnson household, we are raising our kids to be ball hogs. Someone's got to shoot, it might as well be you. We play offense. Or another way of thinking about it is, do I want to live full of faith or do I want to live full of fear? And know this, I believe what the Bible says to be true, that faith can move a mountain. But I also believe fear can create one. In addition to that, I do believe that faith can move a mountain, but don't be surprised when God hands you a shovel. That at times he's going to call you to participate in his own redemptive work in your life and at some point he wants some skin in the game and so we kind of contemplate insignificance or inconvenience and really what we're giving ourselves over to is either faith or fear which know this faith and fear they occupy the same space and these two are terrible roommates you ever had a bad roommate back in the day when you were in college you called mom and dad like home girl has got to go <laughs> she's nasty I need to get a new roommate. Faith and fear, they occupy the same space. They're terrible roommates. And as one increases, the other decreases. And here's what I know about fearful people. Fearful people are wasteful people. They tiptoe through life. They give themselves over to unnecessary doubt. They hesitate and they waffle when it comes to the opportunities in stewarding well what God has entrusted them with. Whether that's time, whether that's talent, or whether that's treasure. They miss opportunities. Fearful people are wasteful people. But on the flip side, faithful people are impactful people. They get down the road and they realize, hey, the moment I said yes to Christ and I started following him and taking him at his word, well, what happened in my life is pretty astonishing. Before I knew it, I became an agent of change. I became a partner of the kingdom of God. Suddenly I was a vehicle of hope and a conduit of grace and I started making a difference in the world that I'm living in. You start to have an impact. And I mean, don't you want to live in a way that makes a difference? And know this, church, if we're going to make a difference, we have to become different. If you and I are going to make a difference, there's some things in our life that are probably going to have to look different. And it's going to take more faith and less fear. You know, there's a, progression of this thought that it extrapolates over our our lives that fearful people become wasteful people and wasteful people become regretful people guys this is not a threat this is a warning that some of you if you're not careful you're going to get down the road and my heart goes out to you because you're going to be filled with regret why did i forfeit the life jesus died to give me Why didn't I make the most of what he entrusted me with? Why did I hesitate? Why did I doubt? Why did I waffle? Why did I forfeit? Fearful people become wasteful people who become regretful people. But faithful people become impactful people who become grateful people. That you get down the road and the overarching theme of your life is gratitude. You're just astonished. You ever been amazed by what God is doing in your life? I mean, God seeks to just do remarkable things in and through our lives in ways that none of us could take credit for. And you just get down the road and you're humbled and you're thankful, like, wow, God, you're so good. And in those moments, know this, the best way to thank God is to trust God. It's just another moment to accelerate your faith. The best way to trust God is to, you know, the best way to thank God is to trust God. And so it is unpacking these heroes of the faith. And then watch what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. He then tells us this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us. Let's pause there for a second. In light of this, what do you see Christians in our culture currently doing? If you were to go ask your non-Christians, friends, hey, when you think of Christians, what do you think of? What would they put? Hey, in light of this, this is what Christians are doing. And here's the deal. We as followers of Christ, we have a major branding problem. It's sad. But a lot of times when people think of followers of Christ, they don't think of grace-filled, integrity-filled, genuine, authentic, generous people. They think of much more negative terms. And we can place blame or we can do the the courageous work of reflecting, hey, is there anything in our character that doesn't reflect Jesus well? My wife, for the longest time, was my sugar mama. I had a dream of being a pastor and really no one wanted to hire me out the gate. I had some things to figure out. I didn't have really any spiritual momentum, didn't have any good internship behind me, had a pretty you know, severe speech impediment. And so I just started volunteering at a church which I believe and I'm convinced it's one of the best things you can do with your life. Before anyone ever offered me a job, I found so much thrill, so much joy, so much fulfillment in just doing life alongside other believers. I loved serving the local church. I ended up getting a job at an overnight can factory also that I could be a volunteer youth pastor, which meant back in the day I ate a lot of Taco Bell and played some laser tag. Our youth pastors here are much more sophisticated. But that's what I did. And my wife, well, she paid the bills. God really blessed her career and it took off and she was wildly successful in the corporate space and had a great run as an HR manager for a large company. At one point, it was about over 3,000 employees and that was her gig. And it was a sweet gig for all of us. And I remember so many conversations around hiring and firing Well, she would talk to me about the hiring process, but she could never talk to me about the firing process. I'm too compassionate. I would be like, babe, you can't do that, (laughs) right? So I remember talking about these conversations, and I remember Kristen always saying that when it comes to a lot of corporations and how they hire and, you know, companies, if you have athlete on your resume, it moves you to a different pile she just say they they just, just look at it and they'll look at a kid coming out of college and they'll say yeah they don't have any experience they haven't worked within this industry but they're an athlete which means over time they've developed an ability to receive constructive criticism which means they know what it's like and have proven over time to put in the hard work also they can achieve a common goal it also means they know how to work with a team it, it knows how they they know how to handle defeat as well as success, and they know how to manage well uh, stewarding and shaping, honing a craft, developing a talent. So when they look at an athlete, they say, hey, they don't have any experience in this industry, but they're an athlete, and that's a plus on their resume. I was thinking about that, and I thought, man, what would happen if we started putting Christian on our resume And come on, this is sad to admit, but most of us would acknowledge if you put Christian on your resume in our current climate, we don't carry the credibility we should. And instead of it being a positive that moves you into the right pile, it might get you dismissed. Now, some of that's fair. Some of it's accurate. Some of it's not. But I do think we have a branding problem. And my question for you is what in your life doesn't look like Jesus? And what would happen as a community of faith if we started elevating our commitment to live like Jesus? Also that at some point down the road, if you call yourself a Christian, that comes with some dignity and that comes with some respect and that comes with some credibility. That within our community, there should be a train of thought where people start to say, hey, I don't believe what they believe, but my goodness, I wouldn't mind hiring one of them. I don't believe what they believe, but I wouldn't mind working for one of them. I may not be a Christian, but I sure wouldn't mind my daughter marrying one of them because they're some of the greatest, most character-filled, humble, compassionate, genuine, integrity, generous people you'll ever meet. I mean, let's get our branding issues in order. And it all comes down to looking more and more like Jesus. So he says... Therefore, you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us, and this is what he tells us to do throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run. Not tiptoe, not hesitate. Let us run with boldness and gladness and sincerity within our heart, believing who our God is to be who he is. Let us run. But part of our running has to do with those two statements he makes. We have to throw off some things that hinder us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And guys, this is gonna be pastoral, but here's what you have to understand. Your faith, well, it has to confront you before it can comfort you, your faith it has to confront you. Before it can comfort you, grace is comforting, but discussing sin that's confronting, and it is just saying, "Okay, God, where in my life do I need to lay some things down?" Also, that my character can look more and more like you, which has me thinking of these tearaways. I'm a big origin story guy. And have you ever looked at these pants and thought, how did these come about? Like, who was the first one to think about this? And I, in my speculation, I believe it had to have been a coach. There was a game, and it was coming down to the wire, and one of the star players needed a sub. And the coach looked down the bench, and he said, Larry, get Tim. And so Larry started to untie his shoes. And he was raised by parents who taught him to double knot. So he's untying his shoes, and he takes his shoes off, and he starts shimmying out of his sweatpants. And the coach thought, this is ridiculous. We have to figure out a quicker way to get these guys in the game. And we ended up with some tearaways. It had to have been that, right? We have to figure out a quicker way to get them in the game. And as a church, we have to figure out a quicker way to get some of you in the game. See, Jesus showed up and he marched his way to the cross and he took on the weight of sin for all of human history, past, present, and future. And he nailed it to the cross. And on the cross, he said, it is finished, which means all you and I have to do to get in the game is repent. And some of you, there's some things in your life that you just need to repent of. And I know you're thinking, well, that sounds like an old school hellfire and brimstone kind of message. It's actually not. Hell is a decent motivator, but heaven is a much greater motivator. And I'm not trying to threaten anyone with hell. I'm trying to entice you with heaven. I mean, for so long, that's what we've tried to do. Scare people into faith. No, you should understand the weight of glory. Glory. You should understand eternal perfection. You should understand the God who holds your eternity in the palm of his hand. You should understand the finished and redemptive work of the cross. You should understand how great this God is and it is your repentance. (laughs) Scripture says when we confess our sins and believe within our heart, we are saved. Some of you, you need to get in the game and repentance is ripping away the things that entangle you. Some of you, you've been a Christian for 30 years and you need to be reminded that repentance is not a one-time thing. It's kind of a daily deal. And I think we are best when we live every single day at the foot of the cross. God, what in my life currently doesn't look like you? And that's what has me thinking about these bleachers, which I spend a lot of time on bleachers just like this. Anyone else? Like I probably sit on average, eight hours a week on bleachers like this. In our household, there is a strong nudge towards the game of basketball. Chris and I both played college, uh, basketball in college, but we also find this really the only sport we can agree on. We've tried other sports, and it was a train wreck. Kristen was an all-American cross-country runner, and so when we first got married, every Saturday she kept signing us up for these 5K runs, which was a bad experience. I understand running when there's a base or a touchdown I have to get to or a bucket I have to score. But when the goal of running is running, it just doesn't work. So we'd do all these 5Ks, which basically meant I would be in the back with a bunch of moms and strollers, and Kristen would be up front with a group from Kenya. And that was our Saturday. It's a bad experience. So there's a strong nudge to the game of basketball. And when you first get your kid plugged into playing, I mean, these games are pretty atrocious. No one really comes to these games. In fact, I think most parents, rock, paper, scissors, like, who's going to that one? (laughs) I'm trying to see that trash, right? It's a real thing. You have a couple parents and maybe some grandparents in the stands. But recently, we were at a game. One of my kids was in the championship game. And they're in this game, and... It was coming down to the wire, close game. I mean, it was exhilarating. And I look around and suddenly the gym is packed. Suddenly all these people started gathering around to watch this game. I mean, players from other teams and families from other teams. People were gathering around to watch a group of kids they didn't know, but it was their affinity for the game of basketball that gathered everybody around. And I thought to myself, My kids are starting to compete in games that really matter. And I think over the last couple years, some of you, when it comes to your faith, you've started competing in your faith in some battles that really matter. And I get the feeling some of you are completely unaware of the fact that as you've been doing so, the grandstand of heaven has been filling up. I mean, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Have you ever thought to yourself, who's in this crowd? Like scripture would tell us that Abraham and Sarah, I mean, the originators of so much within our faith are in this crowd. They were barren and elderly in age and unable to have kids and God made them a promise. And they trusted them in the process. And it didn't come when they wanted it to come. It didn't happen when they were preferring it to but eventually, God came through on his deal. It makes me think of the grandparents who show up to games. They're always there early to get the seat that supports their posture. <laughs> or they come in with one of those really nice chairs, which I'm just too cheap to buy, but I envy every single weekend. It's like a lazy boy. And they're so chill, right? It's like they know your kid's just a late bloomer. Just give it time. I think if you're sitting down with Abraham and Sarah, they'd say, hey, Take a deep breath. The later it gets, the greater it gets. Just relax. You might be a late bloomer in your faith. In that crowd, you also have people like Moses. Moses reminds me of the guy in the stands who is just so hung up on all the rules. You ever sat next to him? It's like, over and back, three seconds, travel. I'm like, bro, go be a ref. Just go be a referee. Like, get a whistle. Just hung up on the rules. Some of you, you're not laughing because you're that dude. (laughs) Moses was the lawgiver. God gave him the commands and the promises and the principles. And he came down with these rules, and he reminds me of that dad. In the crowd, you also have Mary, which I know you have witnessed some Marys at a game. Mary is that really cute and quiet mom But she has that look in her eyes where you're thinking she would cut someone if she had to. (laughs) She looks gentle, but that one's tough. And she's leaned in because she's thinking, I love this game. I love the game of life. And I have an appreciation for faith. And she's in the bandstand. You have people like a Peter. Peter's the dad who gets ejected from the game. (laughs) If you have anger issues, get to know Peter. One time he was so angry, folks. He took out a sword and chopped someone's ear off. Peter, that's too far. (laughs) He had anger, but I get he's in the grandstand of heaven and he's seeing some of you bowed it out in counseling sessions trying to save your marriage. And he sees some of you doing it out with cancer. And he sees some of you who've been stripped of your dignity, and he's in heaven, and there's something about his audacity and his just intensity that says, hey, let him have it. And I love that guy in the stands. Don't you feed off of the crowd? You have the Apostle Paul in the crowd. And this guy was obsessed with winning, which I would probably lean that direction. At one point, Paul wrote down, I will do all things. I will become all things to all people. Also I can win as many as possible. Paul was a trash talker. He's like, "Listen, I don't care if I'm old. I can beat you with an old man game. I'll take you inside. I'll beat you from downtown. I'll beat you on defense. I can win ugly. I can win pretty. I'm a win." That was the apostle Paul. You got people like some of the prophets. Jeremiah known as the weeping prophet which we've all sat next to some whiners at a game. Or Jonah, who was called to Nineveh and ran to Tarshish. That would be the parent behind the stands just pacing because they're nervous. They're all in the crowd. You even have some people in the crowd who, well, they never even played, but they still appreciate the game. You have like a Noah. He's like, I didn't play. I was just a water boy. Oh, church, I worked hard on that one. That's pretty good. Or Joshua. I didn't play either. It was just part of the marching band. Come on, you don't know your Bible? These are fascinating stories. This is our story. This is our grandstand. This is the cloud of witnesses. You have a Naomi in the stands. She's that lady who shows up and doesn't have a kid in the game. My goodness, but she cheers yours on. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And my fear, my concern for some of you is you're so attentive to the noise of culture that you haven't tuned your heart to the roar of heaven. I mean, heaven is losing its mind as you battle it out in your faith. And yes, you're going through some significant struggles, and life is hard, and life is painful, but our God is faithful, and there is an affinity in heaven that leans in that knows, I know how this ends, and I know what God does in moments like this. And if they lean into their faith, they're gonna win. They are going to win. So just for a second, imagine the roar of heaven over your life just take it in Jesus, Jesus died a vicious death. Also we could experience a victorious life. He died a vicious death. Also that you and I can stand victorious in this life. And some of you, don't you dare lose faith. And some of you are sitting next to someone who's going through something. Don't let them throw in the towel. Because I am convinced it is when we swell up in faith and we take God at his word, he does the unthinkable. I mean, where in your life do you just need to say yes to the promptings of God? Where in your life do you just need to take him at his word? Where in your life do you need to embrace obedience all so that you can taste a greater confidence and a greater evidence? Guys, here's what I'm convinced of. God allows us to see things at the speed of our obedience. He allows us to see things at the speed of our obedience. I believe God orders our steps. But know this, God orders our steps, but we determine our stride. Let us run. Let us accelerate the spiritual momentum in our life and let us raise the faith believing God to do remarkable things. Church, stop looking for people to excuse you and start looking for God to use you. See, this is the tension in our world. Everybody wants special treatment. That's really much of the conflict. You have all these different groups fighting over special treatment. My question for you is, which would you rather have? Special treatment or a special assignment? God, I fully surrender my life to you whatever you want to do in and through me, God, whatever you need to get out of me, God, it's yours. It's yours. It's yours. It's yours. Cause I know your grace is sufficient. So Hebrews chapter 12 continues, fixing our eyes on Jesus, which I love that word fixing because some of you have a broken perspective. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Church, those who endure the most, enjoy the most. They get down the road and there is such a pleasure of knowing what God did in and through what they faced. He says, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. And guys, this is... This is remarkable. And I give you this verse as we close. Jesus, moments before he would ascend to heaven, pulls his disciples together. And in John chapter 14, verse 12, this is a big faith concept. He says this, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things. So here's the principle that you have to understand. We can't surpass the works of Christ until we match the works of Christ. So again, what in your life doesn't look like Jesus? What in your life doesn't look like Jesus? We can't surpass the works of Christ until we match the works of Christ. But that last statement is a doozy. He who believes in me will not only do the works I have been doing, they will do even greater things. And I don't know about you, but for me, that takes a lot of faith to believe. We're gonna do greater things than Jesus, which raises the question, is Jesus lying? Is Jesus lying? And know this, one faulty word out of the mouth of our God, and it voids his perfection, which voids our salvation. Our salvation hinges on the perfection of our Savior. Not a single faulty thing comes from his mouth. So, if it's not Jesus is lying, maybe the question is, is the church not trying? If it's not him lying, Perhaps it's us not trying. Our God is still in the business of doing miracles. And he's still in the business of bringing humanity to the end of themselves. Also, that they can discover where he begins. Also, they can discover and experience something only he can get credit for. Church, your God is a big deal. Young people, my goodness, you have a head start. He's a big deal. He is such a big deal. You can trust him with everything. Let's ratchet up our faith. Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? With no one looking around, some of you, you've yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we mean this with the utmost sincerity. He truly is who he says he is. You can trust him fully. He is superior above all things. And eternity and perfection rest only in him. If you want to receive Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, on the count of three with no one looking around, I just want you to slip your hand up. One, two, three. Go ahead. Come on, church. Slip those hands up. Outstanding. Amazing. I see your hand in the back. Sir, I see your hand as well. Outstanding. Amazing. Amazing. I see your hands over here on my right. How about in the balcony? I see your two hands. I see your hand. Unbelievable. I see your hand as well. How about all the way up top? I see your hand. Church, all together, so we don't leave anyone on an island. I want everybody to pray this with me out loud in faith. Say, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to die on a cross for my sins. Today, I acknowledge you as Lord. I receive your grace, and I am choosing to live for you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.